There is a willow grows askant the brook that shows his hoary leaves in the glassy stream. Therewith fantastic garlands did she make of crow flowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name. But our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. There on the pendant boughs, a crown at weeds, clambering to hang, an envious liver broke, when down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. Her clothes spread wide and mermaid-like, a while they bore her up, which time she chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress, or like a creature native and endued unto that element. But long it could not be, till that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. That was Queen Gertrude, played by Julie Christie, and Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. She's telling Claudius and Laertes about the death of Ophelia. My name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. I'm Andrew Kern. Andrew and Heidi, today is the day that we answer questions submitted by our listeners. This is the Hamlet Q&A episode, and just a little foreshadowing of what to expect. One of the questions is, how did Gertrude know so much about the details of Ophelia's death? That's why we started with that audio. Notice that I said death and not suicide, for there is the center of the debate. Are you guys ready for this? After... Five weeks of Hamlet after doing a deep dive. Now our listeners have got questions for us. Are you like, would you call yourselves geared up? I am geared up. I love these Q&A episodes. And man, for Hamlet, the, the problem with a Hamlet Q&A episode is that I probably have just as many questions about this play as anybody else because it's bottomless and mysterious. Yeah. yeah. Andrew, geared up? I'm glad you changed it to geared up from ready because the same as Heidi. I mean, I feel geared up. Sure. Ready? Impossible. No, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, well, I'm going to throw you guys right to the wolves. First question. <laughs> Tess Krayoski from Superior, Wyoming says, I'm thinking about Ophelia. Did Hamlet love her? Does Hamlet know what love is? Can one love without knowing love? Can it be called love if we have an imperfect understanding of love? Did Ophelia stir a longing to love within Hamlet? Did we see what happens when poisoned and lured within the desire of revenge rather than pursuing love? What? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Andrew, let's start with you. Well, first I have to know, what am I actually being asked here? <laughs> Hamlet loved Ophelia, yes. <laughs> okay, let's do the second question. Did Hamlet, does Hamlet know what love is? Does anybody know what love is? I want to know what love is. Reminds me of an 80s song. I want song. you to tell me. <laughs> that was perfect. Does anybody really know what time it is? No. Um, 
Uh, <laughs> Oops, my chair is squeaky. I don't like questions like that. Forgive me, Tess. Well, I like questions like that. I don't like answering questions like that because does anybody know what love is? Yeah, sure. Like my, my granddaughter who's two can say, I love you, Papa. And, and she knows what love is. All right. Um, a couple can get married and they can say, I love you. And then it can fall apart. Does that mean they didn't know what love is? I don't think so. I mean, but then, but then I, I've been married to Karen for 37 years. Do I know what love is? You know, it's, it's, it's a trick question. It's a setup. The test, test is setting us up. Test is setting you up. What do you think that her, why is she setting us up? Like she's, she's mad at us. Oh, really? Tess. Because of the hammer. We wish that you would just talk to us, you know, instead of (laughs) setting us up with these questions. I wish that you could just talk to us, Tess. Okay. Heidi. I, I know Tess. I love Tess. She's the most curious. No, I wish I did. God have mercy on me. I, I suppose I'm learning, but no, I, but I think that the question is it it it's such a good interpretive question for the play because it it goes to the heart I think of of the tearing up of Hamlet throughout the play right this the it forces he has so many competing loyalties so many competing vows so many uh, competing requirements on his life and on his time and on his will and Ophelia is the thing his heart actually desires right and and I I believe that so yes I would say Hamlet loves Ophelia um does do Hamlet and Ophelia have a sweet love story I think not um but yeah I think he loves her um and then I think he had to make a series of really difficult choices that cost everything for her. And, and that's one of the great tragedies. Uh, he had to do this duty, right? And it tore him away from his desire for Ophelia. Whether or not that was the right choice or not is left up to us readers to interpret. That's a really good way to say it because, because what, I w- what I was thinking while you were talking is this is not a play for children. Right. This is a play mm. for grownups mm. and people who can't who can't confront the complexity of grown up life. For example, you talked about Hamlet having to make decisions that hurt Ophelia. And of course, we can then ask, well, should he have done that? Was that was that the right thing to do? Did he overdo it? Well, I don't know. But he was an authority and the authority that he had was an authority he couldn't shirk. And so people had to suffer because of his decisions. And frankly, that's what it is to be an authority. Mm. And, and, and to learn how to love, right. Right. Like that's, that's part, that's how I have to learn how to love my husband, my children, my friends, my work, everything. Like in a way we're all Hamlet, right. It holds up a mirror to our souls. Um, Our choices may not be so fraught with ultimate things on a daily basis as Hamlet's were, but Hamlet's relationship with Ophelia forces us to confront, as you said, do we even really know what love is? And the answer always has to be no, if we're being honest. 
Second question from Joshua Butcher from Winnebago, Minnesota. He has a two, he has two questions. First, is Hamlet a play predominantly about justice, human and divine, or is there another theme or themes that overshadow justice? Heidi, what do you think? Well, I, I'm about to quote, pre-quote Andrew Kern right here. Hamlet is a play about everything. <laughs> so yes, Hamlet is a play about justice. Uh, it is not merely or only a play about justice. And I, I don't know that I'd even say it's predominantly a play about justice. It asks questions about justice, certainly. Uh, but uh, under the umbrella of everything, there's lots and lots of other things. Andrew? I mean, that's, that's a good way to put it because, because um, is, a, is it about justice? Yes. Shakespeare, Shakespeare to me is, is, your, is a classic imp, right? He, he was probably a hard student to teach because I can see him learning everything really quickly, especially on the literary side, and then immediately twisting it all on the teacher. Because that's what he does to the audience, right? Is he takes Hamlet is a conventional play. It's a it's a conventional revenge plot, right? But he turns it all inside out, and he won't live within the normal boundaries. And so, if you if you come at Hamlet at least, but maybe all of Shakespeare later plays, if you're coming at it, it like with a literary theory, and with with a a, a professorial mode. He'll play with you for a bit, but he's going to, he's going to, he's going to break it down on you. And I think, I think that whether that's um, dark or light, it's, it's a playfulness and it's a purposefulness that goes beyond mechanics, if I can put it that way. So, so I don't see Hamlet or Shakespeare sitting down and neither does the asker, but to caricature, I don't see Shakespeare sitting down and saying, my theme shall be justice, right? There are play, poems like that, at least. My theme, my theme is memory. That's how even the law starts the second part of Brideshead Revisited. My theme is memory. And then he talks about memory. Shakespeare wouldn't have sat down and said, this is the theme of my play, or even possibly thought it. But he would have, I think, he would have written about it because it was there to write about while he was writing about Hamlet. And because Hamlet is bigger than the world, whatever is nearby to write about is going to come into the play. And Hamlet, as a, as a unifying, organizing principle of a play, is capable of absorbing it. If you're the director of this play. Me? Um, yeah. Okay. And you have to make certain directorial decisions. Yeah. To highlight a theme. And you know that you can only choose one right. without becoming kind of without confusing your audience uh-huh. is justice the one that you choose huh. well <laughs> you said Great you're, you're talking about hamlet and then you said the phrase without confusing your audience i mean <laughs> I, I no 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 I, I i don't mean um i mean that there are things that you could do as a director visually um there, there's music that you could play that are all contributing toward a theme. Mm-hmm. And I think a bad director wants to, like 
just say, let's do all There's the themes, that. you know, right. like Hamlet yeah. is so complex. Yeah. Let's play all the things. But I think a good director is going to say, no, I'm going to lean into one. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to play act who I imagine Shakespeare to be in my response to you. I think he would resist you right now and he would resist the director. So I'm going to resist you. And I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to say something along the lines of if I was directing the play, I would make it antic. I think that was a term you, you emphasized in our first or second act. I'm going to make it antic, but I don't mean by that, that everybody in the play is going to be crazy. I mean, the play is going to be crazy. And the play is going to confuse. And once one, one, even, I don't know, one day I might be, this isn't possible, I suppose, but one day when I'm directing it, I might make it about justice. And the next day I might make it about madness. And the next day I might make it about love. And the next day I might make it about where Ophelia is the hero. And, and the next day I might make it about irony. I, I, I mean, as because you, you're pinning me down in the practical real world, which I, I appreciate. But sort of not being Shakespeare, play acting Shakespeare. (laughs) I'm going to resist everything. Right. I I think that what Hamlet is doing is pushing against every single barrier. Because because Shakespeare is using Hamlet to explore every single boundary. So so what could 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 we do the play about justice? Can we say make could we direct the play so that it's about justice? I've never directed a play, so I can't really answer that. But theoretically, I think so. Would it capture the whole world that Shakespeare is trying to throw into the play? Justice is a pretty huge idea. Maybe, but probably not. Tim, what about what about you? Would you as a director? I mean, you're you have a theater mind, which I really appreciate in these mm-hmm. podcasts because you mm-hmm. come at it like an actor and a performer and uh, and a director and producer. You're thinking about staging it and making decisions. Whereas yeah. I think Andrew and I tend to tend to emphasize, don't make me make a decision. This is a play about everything, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, in can I put that question then back on you? Yeah, I mean, I think that my favorite. Hamlet's, my favorite movie versions of Hamlet's, the director made a very definitive decision. And I think that part of the reason that the movies ended up being good or that the plays ended up being good was because the director made that decision and kind of said, this is all I can do is do my very best with emphasizing one theme. And I think that we have the great benefit you know, living in the 21st century where we can see a variety of different performances who, that highlight different themes and that allows us to kind of like gather in the totality of this play, which, I mean, I agree with, with you, Andrew, that um, it kind of defies thematic hammering, you know, it's too, it's too big. Um, but I do think that you a director does his audience a service by saying, I choose to emphasize one. And I think hopefully there's like a certain amount of humility and respect that any director would have in saying by choosing one, I don't, I recognize that I'm abstaining from choosing all What if for the purpose of the audience. What, What if this is the theme? Tell me what would happen practically with this, Tim, as a director. 
the breakdown of everything, Co- complete cosmological breakdown at every level, of, every level of being. And I think that's choosing a theme. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think that could be really powerful, really, really powerful. I mean, just the stage setting, if you set the stage in a kind of um, a state of visual decay, whatever that might look like. Yeah. Whoa. That says Hmm. so much, not just about what's happening in the kingdom, but what's happening to these characters' souls, these characters' relationships. And so, I mean, I wonder, Andrew, if that might be actually, would you say? You could shape it like a nut. I was going to say, um, this question comes up about decay, it comes up a little bit later. So let's put a pin in this conversation and go to our next question. Also from John Butcher. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I want to be, I want to try to get as many questions as we can in. Second question from John Butcher from Winnebago, Minnesota. Is the ghost trustworthy or is he ultimately diabolical? Sure. He discovers the truth of Claudius's murder, but he also goads Hamlet to his own death. In the end, does Hamlet, and I think this is a separate question. So I'm just going to leave that the second question i'm not even going to read it is the ghost trustworthy yes he discovers the murder but he also goads hamlet to his own death so this is a question that i um i think this is one of the most interesting questions in a plethora of interesting questions about hamlet um i think that Picking a lane on this reduces the play, though. Um, so the the question of whether or not the ghost is trustworthy, in my opinion, is the interpretive question of the play. And, and I think that it tie, that ties really well into the question of justice. If I were staging this play, I would not pick justice as a main theme because then I think the play becomes, I think justice is included in the themes of the play. I don't think it's, it's not tangential, it's core, but I wouldn't pick it as the main theme because in that case, the play becomes just about a man who cannot make up his mind, right? To do the right thing or not do the right thing, right? And and that is the same kind of question with the ghost. If the ghost is trustworthy, then Hamlet should kill Claudius. If the ghost isn't trustworthy, then Hamlet should not kill Claudius, right? So that is a, I think it's left intentionally ambiguous and I and and I like it that way. I think that it makes the play absolutely bottomless if you leave that question as ambiguous and as intentionally ambiguous within the play. Andrew. I agree. I think the way I would put it is, is um, <laughs> the play itself isn't trustworthy. Okay. That, that if I, if I did back to the question of justice, if I had to pick a theme and it wasn't what I already said, although maybe this is that, it would be Gertrude's words, sin's true nature. Okay. It's a study in sin, the true nature of sin. Okay. And, and if you think about what is a ghost, right? One of the things that, that I've been learning a little bit about recently is how historically Christendom has viewed angels and demons. And I think in, in the modern, in our, in our conventional age, when we think of demons, we think almost exclusively about what the Bible calls unclean spirits, right? We, we think if it's a demon, it, it makes you have 
it gets you sick, it makes you have seizures, it breaks you down. But the Bible tells us that demonic beings are principalities and powers, which is to say they're rulers, they're, they're figures with authority. And the, um, what do you call it? In, in, the, in the heavenlies, Paul calls it, we're wrestling against these principalities and powers. Okay, so are we... Are we looking at this? This is a dead person, right? Okay. A dead person coming back. That's putting us again at the very boundaries of existence, boundaries of certainty, boundaries of life, the place where I don't think anything can be certain. So, so you could say that in that dimension, nothing and nobody in the play is trustworthy because nothing and nobody in that dimension of life is trustworthy. And so the, so the ghost might well be, given this structure of thinking about it, it might well be a principality. And, and the thing about principalities is they're not trying to immediately throw you on the ground and make you fall in the fire. They're trying to make you think. They're, try, they're giving you knowledge and wisdom and insight. Think Genesis 3. They give you knowledge and wisdom and insight so that you will follow them and venerate them and eventually worship them instead of God. So it, what, if, what if this ghost is in fact a principality that is giving great knowledge and great truth and great insight to Hamlet precisely for the purpose, not to destroy Hamlet necessarily, but for the purpose of getting him to follow this principality or this power, right? That, that, that way of thinking about it really altered my I don't know how Shakespeare would have thought of it, so it might be um, anachronistic. But but that way of thinking about it really altered my way of evaluating the ghost. It, it might be a, a much more complex historical. Sorry, it might be a more complex question than our era, which thinks in terms of such caricatures about demons, is is really capable of processing. <laughs> Next question is from you didn't Heidi. Answer. What's that? You didn't answer. Well, I want to get to the next one. I'm kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to weigh in on some of them, only some of these. Okay. (laughs) Because I just want to get through as many as we can. Um, This is from our friend, Pope Tom Pope, who lives in Vatican city. I'm interested in the play's context within, (laughs) within the universe of Christianity. In Hamlet, the characters seem to take matters of faith very seriously right off the bat. How would this play have differed if it were set in pre-Christian time, like Lear? And does it matter that the faith of the characters has not yet reached a level of cultural complacency as they appear to in Merchant of Venice? So I'm going to read those again. Um, How would the play have differed if it were set in pre-Christian time? Does it matter that the faith of the characters has not yet reached a level of cultural complacency, i.e. Merchant of Venice. I would, I would love to start this question. This is a great, great question. Well done, Pope Tom Pope from Tennessee. Um, That's Pope Tom Pope um, for you. He, I, I think that this play would be completely different without the sacramental Christian context of its time. 
Um, I don't think it would work as well in a pre-Christian time. They'd have to pick different spiritual, Shakespeare would have had to pick different spiritual uh, complexities and thematic elements uh, in order to make this play work. Uh, Because so much of the play is dependent, so much of Hamlet's conflict, interior uh, dissolution, like me, like the dissolving of Hamlet. I really love what what Andrew said a few minutes ago about cosmological collapse, right? Um, Hamlet's existential crisis and his collapse in this play is directly tied to the sacramental vision of the world that was held at that time because of the Christian faith. Uh, the idea that in committing that He's caught then between these competing loyalties. The ghost tells him he has to avenge him by killing his father. And yet if he does, he's committed a mortal sin, right? And like the, the, the loyalty to family and this, and the violation of the sacraments then is um, profoundly tearing and dis- dissolving of Hamlet within the play. If it if we didn't have a Christian ethic, and not just a Christian ethic, a Christian sacramental vision, his conflict would be exactly the flaw that's said in the Laurence Olivier vision, which is Hamlet is just a man who cannot make up his mind. Right? That's the that's that then becomes the play. He can't pick a lane. He can't figure out what to do. So he just waits around and does nothing, and then he pays the consequences. That's not what's going on in the play. And, and, and so I don't think you have to be a Christian to read and understand this play. You certainly don't, but it is immensely important to understand uh, the world of the play, the cosmology of these people, what they thought about the nature of the world and what they thought about the nature of sin, as Andrew pointed out, uh, which all takes place not only within a Christian context, but within a sacramental vision of the world. And the metaphysical one. Mm -hmm. Agreed. True. So you don't have to be a metaphysician, but you have to be what I'll call metaphysically sensitive to approach what's going on in this play. And what I mean by that, okay, I'm intrigued intrigued by the question using the word faith as though somehow modern people don't live by faith, right? The the, the scriptures never say you got to have faith, right? it tells you you have to believe in the gospel. You have to believe in Christ, right? Everybody has faith. Rene Descartes, who resolved to begin with doubt, put his faith in reason, right? Everybody has faith. Everybody put people faith in statistics or in science, their parents or whatever. Everybody has faith. A person doesn't have to be a metaphysician, but a person has to be metaphysically sensitive. If, if you think that that rational thought thinking about our experiences and using what conventional modern thinker tends to do. If you think that's enough, you're just not self-aware, right? But, but because all of us are metaphysicians, but some people are, whether they're trained in philosophy or not, some people are metaphysically sensitive. And what I mean is that they're sensitive about is that, that they, they feel like my son, Matthew, when he was three or something like that, driving along in the car and he says, Mom, what if we're all just there's a movie, right? That, that's what I would call a metaphysically sensitive question, right? What, what, is, what is the ultimate nature of things? Not just scientific explanation of things, but what is the ultimate nature of things? So what's intriguing to me is that in, in Hamlet, 
I'm going to th- say they can make higher mistakes, right? Shakespeare is able to have his characters make a higher level of mistakes where the consequences are perhaps greater and the potential glory is greater. I don't know if the comment, but certainly the potential glory is. And, and the faith that they had was, was not, not um, a different quality of being faith. It was faith in higher things, right? You, if you guys have ever heard of Schumacher and the um, a Guide to the Perplexed, he does a pretty nice job of showing that, that there's just levels of faith, right? And so, so there's the spiritual level and so on. And he does it in a way that's comprehensible. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get here is that, yeah, they had, they had faith in, in, in the day of Hamlet, but it wasn't distinguished them from us. It was what they had their faith in. And it was that they had their faith in realities that are of a higher order than our faith. It was metaphysical. It was, as you said, Heidi, sacramental. And, and that just makes, that makes the cliff that much higher if you insist on jumping off it, to, to use the King Lear illusion. That, that's my attempt to answer that quite good question. So, so does it matter? This is the second part of this question. Does it matter that the faith of the characters has not yet reached a level of cultural complacency like Merchant of Venice? In Merchant of Venice, Christianity is so well established in Venice, so taken for granted that non-Christians can be legally ostracized. And Christians don't seem to reflect yeah. much on the doctrines of the faith, the doctrines of the faith as much as they reflect on their in-group status. So That's is such to a ask a question, question in a different way, I think what Tom's asking is, is Hamlet a different play if Christianity was kind of like deeply baked into Danish culture mm-hmm. at the time? If I may, my, my thought on that, it reminds me of a book I've read recently, the title of which I've forgotten, but it makes a distinction between apostolic Christendom or apostolic Christianity and Christendom. And, and apostolic Christian Christianity is, is those periods of time when we're, we're being apostolic. We're going into the world proclaiming the gospel with the expectation of resistance and the, and the understanding that it's not a Christian world. But then there's Christendom, and that's where what you're just describing. There's a complacency, right? And those two those two approaches to, to culture um, have different temptations, right? They have different um, wickednesses, right? You're not as likely to be a hypocrite in a non-Christian world, not that kind of hypocrite anyway, as you Christendom. You're not as likely to climb the ladder um, through playing the game successfully in Christendom and in, in, in an apostolic age. I remember First Timothy 1, it says, if any man desires to be a bishop, he desires an honorable thing. Well, I remember um, my, my mentor when I was a teenager saying that was – at the time when if you became a bishop in the church, he would have said elder, but that was at the time when you could be beheaded. You know, it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was not a welcome thing. So I do think this is a good, good way of thinking about the, comparing the two plays the way he did, Merchant of Venice with Hamlet. I think it's a really great way to reflect on the significance, the fact that world. And if we try to cling, a lot of people are... Are, are, you know, talking about taking back our country and what the, the highest view for taking back for Christian. It's not going to happen. Well, I said that. It's, it's, it's true. The way, the way 
the apostolic age became Christendom through martyrdom. It's not going to change. Next question is from Mariana Silva Stahl from Silver Stakes, South Dakota. She says, I would love to hear more thoughts on Gertrude. She is the most enigmatic character in the play for me. I think Andrew asked, how did Gertrude know all the details of Ophelia's death? And did she push Ophelia to her death? Please share more on Gertrude. So this is kind of hearkening back to that opening audio. What strikes me about that opening audio is it's really beautiful, right? What, what Gertrude says about the death of Ophelia is it's gorgeous and is it elegiac? Elegiac? It's like it's a it's an elegiac. elegiac. Maybe. Pardon me. Maybe it's elegiac. I don't know. Elegiac. Yeah. Depends where you live, probably. But then, if you stop and think about, if you kind of look past the beauty of the this morning statement, you're like, wait, how does Gertrude know all this? How in the world does she know all this? This is disturbing that she knows all this because it's not the kind of account that could be given in any way other than being a firsthand account. In other words, it seems really unlikely to me that someone told Gertrude, a servant told Gertrude, hey, we found Ophelia's body and it looks like her clothing, you know, kind of like blossomed up underneath her and kind of like was, and the drink pulled her down. It just seems really unlikely that this is Gertrude recounting a tale told by a servant who found Ophelia. It really seems like it's a firsthand account. And if it's a firsthand account, why did Ophelia, why did Gertrude not either do something or the darker question is, did Gertrude have a hand in it? Heidi? I, I don't know. That's, I, this, that's why it's a play about everything, Right. It's just Gertrude's role in Ophelia's death is is unclear. If she did have a hand in it, we have to ask why, right? What's her motive? Uh, especially since she seems to have some kind of love for Ophelia and seems to rise to her defense. And it doesn't seem expedient to kill Ophelia. Um, there's no clear motive given within the play for something like that. Um, and, uh, but I agree that the, uh, the explanation that she gives that a servant girl has reported her is insufficient. The, the, uh, Mm -hmm. um, the way that she describes it reads very, very much and sounds very much like a firsthand account. So I've always assumed that she was present. She was there. She watched it happen. Um, But I have no working hypothesis on why. It's a very mysterious moment Mm -hmm. in the play. Andrew, do you have a, do you have a theory about this? I wouldn't say I have a theory. The way I would put it is, if I wanted to explain how Gertrude could do it, I can collect things I've heard people suggest over time. And here here are some of those things. One is she's making it up. And she's making it up because Laertes is is berserk. And if she just says, hey, Laertes, your sister Uh died, then he's going to go berserker. 
But if if she weaves out this beautiful poem in honor of Ophelia, then she can survive the encounter better, if you mm, like. Mm. So I, I could see that. Another thing about, you know, just the 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 um manual nature, the, me- the, the the mechanics of seeing it. Well, maybe she was up on the castle wall. And maybe, you know, there's a willow grows askant the brook. Well, where's the brook? It's down the hill from the castle. And maybe she's looking down from the castle wall and lo and behold, there's a girl uh, and she's climbing on the tree and oops, she just broke into the, wait a minute, who is that? And, and while she's watching to her horror, Ophelia, Ophelia drowns. I, I could, I could accept the possibility of that. I, I could. So those, those two, those two explanations are, are valid, are possible. And maybe, maybe therefore that would be me just talking myself out of wondering what the heck, (laughs) but it's still, it's still a really troubling disorient. Everything's disorient. Does does the idea that Gertrude, this is a question for both of you, have a hand in Ophelia's death. Does that... Do you, it sounds like you're both reluctant to endorse that. And I want to know the reasons why I can think of a couple of reasons. One, Gertrude, uh, seems like she has a soft heart. Mm -hmm. She turns when Hamlet confronts her with her own misdeeds, you know, um, he tells her, I'm going to make you look in the mirror. And she does. And she sees herself and she turns, unlike her now husband, Claudius, who has opportunities to turn and is kind of like shown the mirror himself by the play within the play. She proves herself to be a different sort of person. And that sort of person, a person with a soft heart, surely could never have a hand in Ophelia's death. It, that's... I'm. I'm clearly expressing my own re- my reason about why I don't think Gertrude had a hand in it. Do you guys have different reasons? Do you have that same sense that I do? Yeah, I just I think that there's no motive even hinted at within the play and I think it's inconsistent with her character. So if if you try to force something, right, which I have read I, I, I've, I've read attempts to do that, to, to try to force something, you know, within the political structure of Denmark or this or that, or her feelings about Hamlet or, uh, you know, the Freudian interpretation, that kind of thing. Um, I just don't think it works within the play. I think Shakespeare's too great of an artist for that. I think he would have, if, if he wanted that to be a possibility, would have put it in the play. The only indication we have is this, this firsthand account that is not insufficiently explained. That's the only evidence that we have within the play that she had anything to do actively with the death. What about though, the fact that Ophelia clearly in her crazed state is a problem for the crown because she's speaking truth in rhymes after Hamlet leaves, you know, she's kind of stumbling about the castle and she's speaking in these kind of enneagram enneagram mm-hmm. enneagram enigmatic yeah enigmatic no yes. no enigmatic yeah. um uh-huh. phrases that come really close to implicating claudius as 
the perpetrator behind, you know, Hamlet's right. madness or the death of the king is that that's not, that to me is, I can completely imagine Claudius saying to Gertrude, who will rid me of this crazed woman? Of this troublesome, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what I've read. I've read either the Freudian interpretation that she is, she sees Ophelia on some kind of subconscious level as a rival for Hamlet's affection. So she does away with her. The other explanation is that um, she has been forced by Claudius or, um, or, or by the circumstances, like she's afraid, but then why not just kill Hamlet, right? Like there's... That it, there's not enough in the play to support that. I think it's reaching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing in the dynamic. It would have been really easy for Shakespeare to put something within the dynamic that makes that a possibility. He does that all the time. He's the master of that. And if the point counterpoint, the, the, the inferences and illusions that lead you to say, what is that character? Is that in the history plays? Like, so the fact that he doesn't put anything like that in Gertrude's mouth and that really the only evidence that we have that's straightforward is the fact that how, what does she know? Why does she know so much about Ophelia's death? I just, I think it's insufficient. And, and the reason I resist it is because I think it lessens the quality of the play because you're mm. forcing something and there's already so much that's there that to, to say that, I, it just, it feels like it lessens the, the artistic quality of the play to try to force that. And so I just think it's not there. It, it lessens the artistic quality of the play if it's a mistake. But if, if what Shakespeare is doing is giving us a cosmic meltdown, and in part, of, in part of that cosmic meltdown is the elimination of the family of Polonius from the earth, which is what Laertes and Ophelia's death accomplishes, and if, and if Gertrude is willing to participate in the elimination of that family, and I could see why she would hate Polonius beyond human expression. So all, all those things are potential reasons why it might happen. Another, yeah. another, oh, go ahead. just another, another thing that, that could indicate a willingness by Gertrude is when Ophelia is mad. And they call her to to in the famous um, sins to nature scene, and they call her to see her. She says, "No, I won't talk to her." And so there there might well be a sense of resentment or embarrassment or shame or any number of things that might be going through Gertrude's mind that that she's really annoyed by this. The not so much the person I don't think of of Ophelia, but the but the reality, the presence of Ophelia is, is problematic. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do want to say, I, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I just, I just think <laughs> everything has to stay problematic in Hamlet. I agree. I, I totally agree with that. I think that it fits on the thematic level with what you're saying, the cosmic meltdown. I, I think that that, I think that's great. And if Shakespeare had put more indications on the literary level, I'd accept that. I just don't think he puts enough in the play as it on a literary reading to support Gertrude is the murderer. But I think thematically the point you're making is fair. Uh, all they would have had to do is put in like an, some, something that, you know, 
Claudius said to Gertrude, you know, we know that Claudius is plotting against Hamlet. Why not just put a throwaway comment or two that shows he's also plotting against Ophelia? And then we have a question mark in our minds, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be easy enough to do that. Is that what you mean by on a literary level? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I mean. There's just not enough clues within the story so that if Shakespeare wanted to make that a possibility, he would have added it in. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, leave a little break, little yeah. trail so that, of crumbs. So, that, so then you have to like kind of force it from the outside instead of it being within the world of the play. Yeah. And does Shakespeare not do stuff like that in his plays where he just kind of I think he gives clues. I think he gives points and counterpoints as a, I, I, um, I don't think he relies entirely on, I mean, certainly he leaves much to the interpretation of the audience, but I think in general, he builds in enough so that we can say, oh, look over here. Don't forget about this in scene four that we tie into this other thing that happened in scene two. So I just think he's too much of a master of his craft to leave that entirely to the imagination. I just don't think it's in the play. I think Ben Johnson would disagree with you. <laughs> I, 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 I disagree with Ben Johnson about a lot. Yeah. So that's yeah, fair. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. I, I just, I, I guess what I mean by that is I think to, to call Shakespeare a master of the craft is, is certainly true, but he's more of a transcendent master than a disciplined master, if I can put it that way. Next question is from Joshua Butcher from Ice Block, Arkansas. I recall Andrew speaking at a conference a few years back about how Hamlet, <laughs> Hamlet was a play that was representing the shift from a medieval cosmic model to the Copernican cosmic model. No, oh, get ready, y'all. If he's <laughs> if he's strung to go down together any more strands of that spider web, I would love to hear about it. Andrew, this is this is your moment. Heidi, do you want to address this? I absolutely could address it, but no, I do not want to because I love hearing you talk about medieval cosmology. And I have just already talked about it to our listeners in the Book of the Dun Cow ad nauseum. <laughs> and so they all want to hear from you and not from me. I doubt that, but okay. I'll, 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 I'll try to do this in a minute. So there's, if we look at it in a, in a, in a, cheesy kind of way. There's really interesting facts about the play, like for that correspond to astronomical this, developments in the his, history of astronomy. For example, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are Hamlet's two best friends, are also two names on the heraldry of Tycho Brahe's shield. Okay, the, the red Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the red cross and the golden star in English. These are, Tycho Brahe was one of the men who was trying to figure out what is the right arrangement of the stars and the sun. And he's contemporary with Shakespeare. Okay, and Tycho Brahe then mentors Johannes Kepler. And it's Kepler who's really decisive in in arguing for the Copernican system. So when Shakespeare is living, there are three models arguing it out for what is the truth about the solar system. Okay. One is the ancient, well, the medieval Ptolemaic model, which is that the earth is in the center and then the planets move around it. Now, for what it's worth, 
Ptolemy had a first name, the historical character Ptolemy. It was Claudius. And one of the things that Claudius Ptolemy used to describe the motions of the stars was retrogression. And one of the things that King Claudius says to Hamlet when he wants to go back to Wittenberg is, it is most retrograde to my desires. So he's putting this, this Ptolemaic language into Claudius. In addition, Wittenberg to us is famous for Martin Luther. At this time, in Sha when Shakespeare's writing, Wittenberg is actually one of the primary locuses of Copernican theory. It's, the, it's the, one of the leading schools that's arguing and defending for Copernican theory. So that's interesting. It's also interesting to know that Polonius, his name means Polish man. Okay, Copernicus, Nikolai Copernicus was Polish. So people argue then that Copernicus, sorry, Polonius represents this other model of the cosmos and Claudius represents the Ptolemaic model of the cosmos and that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern represent the third model of the cosmos, which is Tycho Brahe's model, which is that everything moves around the earth, but a few, unless I'm getting this backwards, of the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, and the moon revolve around the earth, but all of the system revolves around the sun. So Brahe makes it pretty complicated. And it's interesting then that he has two centers and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are two people. So all, all of this is just kind of interesting. I don't think Shakespeare is doing anything conspiratorial. I will point one other thing out that's interesting. And that is that, that one of Shakespeare's best friends was Thomas Higgis, H-I-G-G-E-S. And he was the son of the person who popularized Copernican uh, astronomy in England, in London at this time. So all of those things are, are very potentially just Shakespeare having fun, right? N not particularly meaningful. But at the same time, as we've talked about over and over, the play Hamlet is about the whole cosmic collapse. The whole world is changing. And if you're living in 1600, which is about the year when Hamlet comes out, and you compare it to the world in 1500, it's almost a completely different world, right? You have, you have the shift. You, you've now got a Protestant country, which was Catholic in 1500, so it's theologically different. You've got a, diff you've got a battle going on now for cosmology. What, what's the center of the universe? Rather a big question. You've got a different ethical code now because the Protestant versus the Catholic ethic is different. You've got, you've got um, a different dynasty in England. So the, the, the Elizabethan or the, or the Tudor dynasty has replaced the, which was it, the Yorks. And so I could just go on and on. Every level of, of life has, has, has changed. And, and that's what I think Hamlet is capturing. And a big part of that, whether Shakespeare is doing this metaphysically, which I think he is, or just for kind of fun, he's, he's saying, look, we don't live in the world. We don't live in the same cosmos that we lived in 100 years ago. And, you, and so to, to put that on the, I don't know, on the surface where it's not even noticed, he, put, he plays with people's names that correspond to the different theories at the time. So it's really, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. I, I'm not sure what to make of it. It's really interesting. Except that I think it's about the cosmic collapse of the age. But sorry, Tim. No, no, no. That's great. Um, 
two more questions, and then we're gonna we're gonna have to say um, good night, sweet prince. Sorry, I just had to slip that in there. Nice fight of angels. Sing me to thy rest. It's from James Wright from Soda Springs, Idaho. I love this <laughs> question. How might Hamlet's dad react to the end of the play? His murderer is dead at Hamlet's hand, but so are his wife and son, and the son of his vanquished foe now runs his country. So how might Hamlet's dad react to the end? I like this question a lot, and it makes me realize that to go back to an earlier question in which I vehemently defended the ambiguity of the ghost, it it makes me realize that I do not believe the ghost was good because I, I don't know what the ghost, I still want to stand on, on not knowing whether or not what the ghost was, whether it was a true ghost, whether or not it's, it was right to avenge um, Hamlet senior's murder. But in, in hearing this question, my first response was the ghost would not care. Hmm. Um, and I think, as Andrew said, and learning and studying more about the development of belief about the nature of supernatural beings, both demons and angels and ghosts and all that over um, over the centuries, I really, you know, I, I mean, it's just taught that that once that the dead can no longer repent, which to me is like the saddest thing I can think of. Like that, that's a fate, a fate worse than death, right? The fate of death, like to be able to, to no longer have the ability to repent or to change your mind morally, um, or to turn towards God and towards goodness is, I can't imagine anything worse. Like that's hell. And I, so I, I imagine the ghost looking at that with looking at such human suffering and devastation that comes as a result of his intervention in the life of the living and not like turning a deaf ear. Like I imagine the ghost not caring at all as long as Claudius died. That's what mattered to me. And so I realize in, in my, and I don't know if I'm right about that. I don't know, but that's the picture I have in my head. So I realize to go back to an earlier question, I do not believe the ghost was good. I'm so surprised by this. I'm so yeah, surprised I am by too. this. To be honest, I am too. I'm, I'm surprised at my own response. It was that this question, when I read the question on the Facebook page, the first thing I imagined was the ghost kind of standing there with this like stern, indifferent look, like with no repentance, just glad Claudius was dead and his son finally did it. Because I can't imagine anybody knowing Hamlet and asking him to do this. Like knowing him as a person and loving Hamlet. Like you can't love Hamlet and ask him to do what they did. And so I don't think the ghost loves his son and I don't think the ghost was good. And I might be wrong, but just my own love for Hamlet is kind of dictating that. And my own belief as a Christian that the dead cannot repent. Andrew. Very intrigued. I am very intrigued by the way we've just framed our discussion, right? We started with love and authority. We're back to love and authority. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, I, that's true. I, I think Heidi said, if, if you know Hamlet, you wouldn't ask him to do this. 
but I wonder if that's true. I, I wonder, I wonder. Fair. If, and here's why. Because I'm giving a very human response right now, not necessarily an intellectual scholarly one. So set me straight, please. <laughs> So am I giving an angelic response? Is that the idea? I hope so. Uh, well, my my response is meant to be, I'll put it, a human response that corresponds to the way they would have thought. And, and, and probably they thought about this better than we do. And that is that they recognized an honored authority. And we don't. For, for us, authority is is something we don't trust. We think it's it's oppressive. We think it's it's power driven, and we don't understand that if you are a delegated authority, you don't have the right to let somebody else take it away from you, right? So so if you are the king, and somebody tries to take the kingship away from you, you don't have the right to let that person take the kingship. You are duty bound to be king. Okay, now you you could you could work out processes. You could have you could call your council and you could say, you know, give me some advice. Can can I somehow stop being king and we can make that guy king? And and then the council might become a group of electors and say, yeah, you know, we we'll, we don't like you anyway. You're afraid of being king, but that's 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 different. That's you're you're acting out your authority. But if you have been delegated authority, you're not allowed to give it up, and that's. That's, um, I would say we, we can apply this to our Lord, right? He, he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he delegates to us the apostolic authority to rule demons and, and, and spread the kingdom of God. We don't have the right not to do that, right? And, and in a similar way, I'm not, by the way, defending the ghost. I, I, I am inclined to agree that the ghost is probably not trustworthy because nothing in Hamlet is trustworthy. <laughs> but, but having said that, I wouldn't base, I wouldn't say the ghost isn't trustworthy because he tells Hamlet to take back the throne. Now, if it's just vengeance, right, that's wrong. But if it's Denmark, the, the, the time is out of joint. We have a dislocated time and it is my task to set it right, okay? And, and dad is saying to son, this is your task. This is what you have to do. Okay. But that, that wasn't that the ghost. Right, but that wasn't the ghosts. The ghost didn't bring up at all Hamlet's succession. He does not say, justly restore yourself to the throne. He says, go kill the guy that killed me. Right. I, I think that's a very good point. And that's why that's why I say I'm not trying to defend the ghost. Right. It's more right. Than I hear that. I, I get all I get. Let me be really precise. What I'm saying is if the ghost is good, let's just assume the ghost is good. He could say to Hamlet, you should you should kill Claudio and take back the throne. Now that he doesn't precisely say that, I agree with you. And so I, I have I have very serious problems with the ghost. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I hear that. How do you think the ghost would respond at the end then, given like I, the, the question on the table then of how would the ghost respond to the, the, the you know, the stage full of dead bodies at the end? Did that would the ghost say the plan has gone wrong or would the ghost say, good, Claudius is dead? Tim, you know that 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 howling laugh that's famous from Hollywood from the 
30s and 40s that people still fall back to for just for fun. Who was that that did that? Was it Bella Lugosi like, or one of them? A, a howling laugh of like an evil cackle. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's say it was Bella Lugosi. I don't know. Okay. Well that that that's how I think the ghost would respond. That's <laughs> what I think too. That's what I think too. The wicked witch a of the shriek of wicked <laughs> laughter. Yeah. Which this is the question out of all of them that clarified to me in my mind that I think the ghost is wicked. Mm. Even if it was just for Hamlet to kill Claudius. Mm. At this like this this question was so insightful to me because I cannot picture the ghost grieving or weeping at all based on what we see in the ghost in the play. Mm. You know what Claudius just literally means? I just thought of this. If I if I'm mm. understanding it rightly, it means him he who is closed. A closed person. So yeah, he's hmm. he's a secretive guy. I See, what do you think, Tim? I think Yeah, Tim, what do you think? I'm I'm a little bit confused about why you guys um don't trust the ghost. I mean, the one of the very first things that we hear from Hamlet, Act One, Scene Two, is praise for the integrity of his father as a person, as a husband, and as a ruler. So excellent a king that this was a Hyperion to a satyr, so loving to my mother that he might not be tamed the winds of heaven, visit her face too roughly. I mean, so it seems really clear that we are supposed to esteem the man who became the ghost. So are we also supposed to believe. So I'm also having a hard time believing that the ghost is not trustworthy. I think Hamlet goes through a state of doubting the ghost's words, even though the only evidence that we have that the ghost is telling the truth has been verified. His brother did in fact kill him and marry his wife. So I think we have evidence both at the beginning of the play about his nature, about that he has integrity, we also have evidence within the play that his one charge and the thing that he wants made right is in fact true. So I'm, I think that we have both a good ghost and that we have a ghost that is telling the truth, albeit one that, whose word is doubted by his son. I love that. I, I would put it this way. I believe we have a ghost who is telling the truth. I don't believe the ghost is the father. And I believe the ghost is using the truth to destroy everybody. And so Hamlet's just fooled into thinking that this ghost is his father. It's an apparition. And why would there be an apparition miming the visage of his father, telling him true things? Why? What, what's like, I mean, just because. Well, the there's ghost- two possibilities. One is to get their loyalty so that they will follow him and very potentially possibly worship him. And the other is that he wants to destroy them. That he wants to destroy them, them being. Like it could the- be just Hamlet. It could be all of them. It could be the whole kingdom. It could be that he is the, he is the principality of, of Norway and he wants Norway to come and overthrow Denmark, just as the Prince of Persia held Gabriel back from seeing Daniel. But uh, aren't he, we, aren't, isn't this like duex machina at the beginning of the play rather than the end of the play? Like we're supposing all of these things about the ghost that like have no, what you're, what you're supposing doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the play. The rest of the play is contingent upon this ghost, like 
giving a true account and his motives are bound up within the resolution of the play. So I would respond to that right now by saying that's very possible. And so I don't want to, um, I don't want to make too heady a case for, for the position that, that I'm tentatively holding to right now, because it's not, I think like with Heidi, I, I've never, I've never held this position before. It hasn't matured for me. It, it hasn't gone through a time of trial. So I'm not going to aggressively defend it, but if I had to try to speak back to what you just said, what comes to mind is that ultimately doesn't matter because if it's a ghost that is in the broader sense, not the comical modern version, but in, a, in the deeper sense, a principality, and it is trying to either overthrow Denmark or lead them to whatever it is, what, what demons actually do, what if, if it is doing that, and if Hamlet has that in his theology, then that's what it would do. It, it wouldn't lie, right? It wouldn't lie. It would tell the truth. Demons tell the truth all the time. Demons constantly are giving secret information or information that we're not supposed to have yet or, or insight into things that puff us up. They, they, they don't only lie. They, they tell us the truth very carefully, very selectively. And I think that the cosmology of the time Mm -hmm. makes Hamlet wonder if he is being deceived. I can absolutely see that. Mm -hmm. I just think that the evidence supplied within the play says, no, probably not. So I would differ with you on that. I think my reasons are different than Andrew's, though, because... And that, that's what I meant earlier and didn't flesh out when I said, how could you love Hamlet and ask him to do what he did? Because if this is his father who was good and who loved his mother and didn't want the wind to touch her face too hard. And like, how could he ask this man, Hamlet, to do this thing that he like he this is his son. Like, I have a son. There's things I would never ask my son to do based on what I know about him. No matter what felt right to me about my own justice, right? Like it's the thing that he asks him to do is to put his soul at risk of damnation for his own revenge. And even if Andrew's right, that that is the cause that, that, the, that Hamlet ought to be on the throne. That's not a benevolent way to get him there. And it's not the stated reason that the ghost gives him. The ghost said, he killed me, kill him. And that is not the act of a father or a king, in my opinion. Heidi, though, doesn't that, the ghost doesn't know how the play is going to end. He doesn't know it's going to be body bags on body bags at the end of Act 5. His hope hope Mm. is that Hamlet can accomplish revenge and that the kingdom recognizes what has been done. I mean, I think this is even part of the reason why Hamlet stages the play within the play is because a private accusation to the king when nobody else is around does no real good for the rest of the kingdom because it's just my it's just Hamlet's word versus Claudius's word whereas if he is exposed in the broad in the light then the other people who are in the court 
will also recognize it and say, the rightful heir should be on the throne. That's Hamlet. So when Claudius dies, Hamlet is rightly installed. That's, my, that's what I think the ghost is hoping for, some sort of putting right publicly um, what has been done wrong and that does not mm-hmm. end with Gertrude's death, does not end with Hamlet's death, does not end with Ophelia's death. Like, it just ends with Claudius's death. That's the only one. I think that's what the ghost is hoping for. And it's a, definitely a risky proposition for Hamlet. I mean, he is in the middle of battalions of swords, and all those swords are being held by Claudius. I, I think the king recognizes, the ghost of the king recognizes the dangers inherent, but I don't think that the ghost is asking for Hamlet to die. I think he's saying, get revenge. At the end of the play, then, with the question on the table, at the end of the play, in your mind, what is the ghost doing with the stage? How does he respond to the stage full of dead bodies? I think he's um, heartbroken at the death of his son, heartbroken at the death of his wife, heartbroken about Ophelia, Laertes, and Polonius, maybe not Polonius. And I think that he also (laughs) thinks that something has been made right. Now, like, and so I think like a maximum level bittersweet is I think how I would describe how the king, how the ghost feels. Hmm. It's interesting how that question, I'm like so fascinated and thankful for that question because- that that was a great the question. question that clarified to me what I really believe about the ghost. Yeah. I think you can I think you can make the case for what Andrew said and for what I said and for what you said and probably uh, many other interpretations within the play. And I'm I will stand on the ghost's ambiguity is important to the play. Once you pick a lane it changes the play. However, I I that was the question that clarified to me what I really, how I really interpret the ghost mm-hmm. and what I believe mm-hmm. deep down about the nature of the ghost. Let's handle our last question. This is from Ryan Van Meter from Lilburn, Georgia. In Denmark, is everyone and everything broken? It sure seems like it. Marriage is broken. Young love is broken. The monarchy, friendship, hearts, minds, parenthood assassination, even death, the ghost. Does everyone go around talking about existential meaning in this play because nothing can be taken for granted in this world? And if so, what lesson is there in that for writers? Oh, what a great ending to that question. Let me, let me address the bigger thing first be, because <laughs> I used to say, Every schoolboy needs to read, every school child needs to read Hamlet because it's a study in how to survive in a perfectly paranoid environment. And I believe that um, school is a fundamentally paranoid environment, nine schools out of 10. I've heard you say that before. I love it. (laughs) Well, I wish I, I mean, I, I wish I didn't have to mean it, right? But we forget how frightening an environment it is for kids. But and teachers and well, I'll I'll stop there. But, but now it's 2021 and, and we've become a, we've become a nation, a world that is drifting toward this paranoia. And I think that, that Hamlet might become the, the, 
a source of consolation and wisdom for people in a way that it never could have been before these last couple of years. And so, so as far as like, what, how does it help a writer? I, I really believe that word paranoia defines Hamlet that, that when you lose your cosmos and when you lose your God and, you know, to go with Nietzsche, when your God is dead, when, when your cosmos is also dead and when your culture is dead and your, your religion is dead and your customs are dead and everything is dead. And then at the end of it all, everybody's dead. You know, what, what do you do? How do you survive that? And what, what's the role of a writer? And if I'm understanding the question, right. I think that, that what Hamlet gives everybody and therefore, especially a writer is, is pictures, metaphors, analogies, activities, motifs, themes that we all can spend all of our time thinking about with one fundamental reminder that I'm really reluctant to say, because it's like a deus ex machina. And that is the modern tends to turn to God as a consolation, so much so that that the atheists and and leading philosophers who believe in God will say that that the reason we turn to God is for consolation. Okay. Well, you can take all the things that have happened in the world and you can say, yeah, but God's in control. And then you can just sweep it all away with the snap of the fingers. And maybe what you just did is confess your faith. But maybe what you just did is ran for a childish constellation to the wrong mom. I mean, I don't like the idea of just sweeping away the challenge of the age by saying God's in control. Okay, God's in control is an abstract concept that needs to be lived out. And that's going to be the challenge that we're confronted with. And that's what writers are going to have to think about is what 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 are the particularities of God's sovereign rule and control and and loving tending of his people as we go through such an unbelievable, unstable, unpredictable time where we're going to see we're going to see things that two years ago, we never, ever would have believed that we would be seeing them in our lifetime, much less in the next three or four years. I, um, I think that the lesson for writers might be interesting to highlight, I think, what uh, earlier Christian writers, maybe from 70 years ago, thought about their task. And mm. I think the writers that come to mind are writers like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, maybe Evelyn Waugh also. I think that those writers were keen to highlight what was potentially being lost. Um, and I think they highlighted it both in their fiction work and in a work like The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. I think there's this real sense that the changes that are being wrought in Europe and the United States are had the potential to be profoundly deleterious. And I think to take more contemporary writers that have a strong, let's call it a religious or a spiritual drive within their work. And I'm going to think about Marilyn Robinson and Wendell Berry, just because those are two known figures. I think that they are 
aware of the things that are being that are being being lost or have been lost, I think that they are more concerned to show characters who are a faithful presence who are participating in like a community that is part of like that is enacting faithful presence that seems to be what they are most concerned with so i don't want to pretend that that wendell berry is saying is not concerned about things being lost i think he is but i think my hunch is that wendell berry kind of recognizes um something has changed pretty profoundly since the time of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Um, and I'm not sure that we can get it back. And I think instead what he's proposing, and I think Marilyn Robinson is proposing something very similar, that um, being faithful in a time of kind of the sort of decay that Ryan Van Meter is asking about, I think... Um, opting for some sort of a faithful presence is their solution. And that's a solution that I find really gratifying and hopeful. Um, if I think about kind of like turning the ship around, I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe I'm too cynical. I, I, I'm not hopeful about that project, but I am about like the idea of preserving and um, um, encouraging a faithful presence in the world. A remnant, not a power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote from um, a book called The Meaning of Shakespeare by Harold Goddard. It's my very favorite Shakespeare commentary. It comes in a two-volume set. And volume one has Hamlet in it. And speaking of the play, this goes to Ryan's question. He says this, the greatest poetry has always depicted the world, although I'm going to say the hero, right? The story, a story, right? The greatest poetry has always depicted the world as a little citadel of nobility threatened by an immense barbarism, a flickering candle surrounded by infinite night. Hmm. And I just love that mm. so much. And it's it's stories like Hamlet, like the Odyssey and the Iliad and um, the Lord of the Rings and Narnia. And there's, there, there's stories like that, that that ennoble me in the midst of a crumbling generation that, you know, it is it. It is the propositional truth that also anchors me, but it's the stories that ennoble me and I hope and pray. And so I think writers, you may not write Hamlet or the Odyssey, but write something, right? <laughs> it makes me, it makes me think of Penelope weaving the shroud and then unraveling it. Like even if you, even if you, even if your work ends up getting unraveled, do it anyway because that's the work that we contribute while we wait for the Lord to return. It's good work. I like that. Tim, I know you, I've had my chance, but I wonder if I could just add something to build on what you and Heidi just said. And I think of the, the poem, is it, it, is it Edna St. Vincent Millay or, or Edith? Edna. Uh, 19th century, Emily. 
The, the, the one who said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Oh, that's Dickinson. Yeah. Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson thank you. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. what I would say is that we need to um, proclaim the logos, proclaim Christ, the logos, but we proclaim him by putting him in, by incarnating him again, right? In story, in parable, in, in Narnia, in Middle Earth, in the Deep South, in, in Kentucky. Um, we, we, we take the Logos that is Christ and we make stories that reveal him and simply proclaim him. And we do it with boldness. And I think to do that, the person who's going to be a storyteller, I would say the two things that need to be, three things need to be done. One is master the craft, get a mentor, get people to give feedback, but master the craft the way Tim does with his, his, his playwriting and his directing, master the craft and follow the spirit because, because the, the spirit of the Logos, the spirit of the word within you will tell you what you need to say when you need to say it. But if you haven't mastered the craft, you still won't be able to. And so you bring together the spirit and the son, the flesh and the spirit by, by doing that. And you hear the voice of the father and you're able to create a, a, a profound work of art that reveals Christ, the Logos, through a work of art and thus reveals the, the love of the father. And don't worry too much about moralizing. Don't worry at all about moralizing and don't worry about you know, beginning and ending with some kind of um, didactic narrative. It, it's not what it's about. It's, it's, it's about. it's about mastering the craft of storytelling and using that craft to simply tell truth and follow the spirit of truth where he leads you. And, and, but, but you got to do both. You have to follow the spirit and you have to master the craft. I ran across a quote. This is one of my all-time favorites. You guys ever read a quote and it's so um, like meaningful to you that the moment you hear it, you almost like have unwittingly memorized it. There's this, Mm -hmm. um, Walter Brueggemann is a, I think he's especially an Old Testament theologian. And I read this quote. In fact, one of my former students who knew me really well sent me this quote. And she said, I think you're going to appreciate it. And as soon as I read it, I was like, oh my goodness, I've memorized it instantaneously. We know, so this is capitalizing on what Andrew said about like, refrain from moralizing, you know, trust the craft. The quote is, we know now that human transformation does not take place through excessive certitude or... (laughs) something along the lines of technique or no uh, um like extreme pedagogy Mm. but the playful consideration of an alternative scripting of reality and its interpretation of the world basically um i wish i had the quote in front of me because it's much more powerful than that but i mean this is like what transformed lives and i really think this is true is not like a tweaking of one or two moral precepts, but of like reimagining oneself in a different narrative. I mean, this is what happens when people join AA. The first statement of AA, you know, hello, I'm Tim, and I'm an, I'm an alcoholic, is a statement of a new reality, one that they were not previously living under, you know? And I think this is what 
stories like Hamlet do, we are reimagining a, a different world, one that is different than the world that we have imagined, different from the script that we're kind of living. And when we kind of like step into that new story, that's what really causes really profound transformation. It's not just like the tweaking of a few moral precepts or something like this. I like that. I think that's really good. You guys, we got to put a bow on it. Um, I want to remind everybody how to get a hold of us. These questions that you heard today came from the Close Reads discussion group, which you can find on Facebook. Um, we, we also are on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. Close Reads is our sister or our cousin, kind of the, the flagship podcast that the plays the thing is under. And so we, you can contact us through Close Reads Pods. Um, you can also get a hold of us by email at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget about our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Next up for us, we've already dropped two episodes, is The Taming of the Shrew with Matt Bianco from the Searcy Institute and Nora Ankrum, Executive Director of a Theater in West Virginia. And it's a very fun set of episodes because it's a bit of a pro and contra about whether or not Taming of the Shrew is a misogynistic play. Um, so please tune in for those. I want to thank Heidi and Andrew right now. Thank you so much, you guys, for for joining me. Oh, man, are you kidding? This is like the highlight of, I mean, to be able to talk about Hamlet with two amazing and interesting people with just, I, I, it's, it's, it's a gift. Thank you for having me. I feel the same way. You, you all, you know how often we've talked about Hamlet in every context, how much I love it. <laughs> right. I'll say how much I love the play, but how much the play perpetually challenges me and makes me rethink everything. And, and, and it's, it's got so much challenge and wisdom to it. So thank you very much for, for letting me be part of this discussion. It's an honor and a privilege. And a, it was fun. It's really fun. Um, it's fun the word though. It was, I mean, profoundly rewarding. It was profoundly rewarding. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks yeah. to our listeners. Uh, tune in to the Taming of the Shrew, and as always, happy reading. Mm-hmm.